weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomena. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlow Weird Show. I'm your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. South Florida is home to one of the greatest literary festivals, the Miami Book Fair. This annual event hosted by Miami-Dade College brings in over 300 renowned national and international artists each year. And just like drawing a moth to a flame, our SoFlow team was drawn to a few eclectic authors and together we discovered some very weird things. We first caught up with Miami's own Brad Meltzer. He's written over 35 books translated into 25 languages and has been on the New York Times bestseller list for fiction, nonfiction, advice, children's books, and comic books. And while his first published novel, The Tenth Justice, became an instant bestseller, he had previously received 24 rejection letters. So I asked Brad, what kept him going? Or was he just stubborn? Stubborn. I'm stu- <laughs> I was young and I was stubborn. I was 24 years old when I started writing. And when I got, I got 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers at the time. I got 24 rejection letters. <laughs> How does that Which possible? means some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. <laughs> but I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I started what became... The Tenth Justice, my first published novel, right. um, and and if you know, I, I I can look back and then say, well, I was just so full of, you know, confidence and everything. I was just stubborn. I was yeah. I was young and twenty four and refused to believe that the world could stop me. And I felt if you don't like that book, I'm gonna write another. And if you don't like that, I'm gonna write another. And but eventually, I'm sure the world would have grinded me down to nothing. No, but it's it's great because most people would have given up. I mean, in all honesty, so it's good you persevered through that. Um, where did you get the idea for the plot in your book, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington? Yeah, the first conspiracy. So I found it in the place where all good secrets are found, which is in the footnotes. Mm, and okay. I found this footnote that said there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. And I was like, is this real? Is this nonsense? What is it? I started digging into it, and the story was true. In 1776, there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When Washington found out about it, he gathered up those responsible, built a gallows, took one of the main co-conspirators, and he hanged him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. Um, that's not actually a real historical quote, but you know, you get the picture. <laughs> and, um, and the thing that I loved is, uh, is digging into this story that no one knew. And, and that's where the first conspiracy started. That, I mean, you you really do have a knack for digging into research and just really uncovering things that just, I mean, people didn't know about. So I think that's great. But how do you know where to dig? Yeah, full credit to Josh Mensch. One of the first things I did with this book is I went to um, our executive producer for the TV show we did called Lost History. And he's an award-winning documentarian, um, has done work on PBS and everything, the History Channel, PBS, anything in between. And full credit to the research for him because he was the one who helped us dig in the right places. One of the things that happened um, when we were, you know, if you put in George Washington in 1776, good luck, right? You're just going to get too many things you could ever read. Right. But one of the key breakthroughs, you know, people like to think, and I love to think of myself as like I'm like Indiana Jones. I'm in a library. I like crawl on my knees and hands and I like find this arcane information. I blow the cobwebs away and then I present them to you. And here's my book, The First Conspiracy. But the truth was Josh um, found, and, and these things are not hidden. They're not hidden in cobwebs. But it's you just, gotta know where to look. And no yeah. one wants to read them. 
That's yeah. the thing is you can even find where they are, but no one wants to take the time to read it. And we just took the time to read it. What Josh did is he, you know, there was a, when they, when they had that hanging of the person who tried to kill Washington, there was a trial. That trial wasn't in the court system because there was no United States back then. It was a secret tribunal, but they still had a trial. Yeah. And when you have a trial, guess what you also have? A transcript. Ah, And suddenly right. had the transcript. Oh, my God. And now we had, here's who's being tried for this thing. Now, when I put in George Washington, we're putting in, you know, the, the names that are of the people that are there and the witnesses that are there. And suddenly you have a whole new story. Um, and that, to me, was when it all cracked open. In your let's let's move into your children's books. Yeah. In your I Am series, which tells the stories of real American heroes like Amelia Earhart and Abe Lincoln, who were your local heroes growing up? Yeah, my you know listen, we're in Florida now, so we got to talk about our um, I you know obviously we take out my mom and dad, and my grandfather, and people who I'm related to. But my real hero is a uh, my ninth grade English teacher. Really, it was uh, I grew up here in South Florida. Her name is Sheila Spicer. She taught me English in ninth grade. She changed my life with three words. She said, "You can write," and I was like, "Well, everyone can write." She said, "No, no, you know what you're doing, and here's what we're gonna do." She tried to put me in the honors class. I had a conflict. She said, "This is what we're gonna do instead. You're gonna sit in the corner for the entire year." Ignore everything I do on the blackboard. Ignore every homework assignment I give. You're going to do the honors work instead. And what she was really saying to me was, you're going to thank me later. And sure enough, a decade later, when my first book came out, I went back to her classroom. I knocked on the door. She said, can I help you? I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. Oh, my God. And she starts crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? She said, I was going to retire this year because I didn't think I was having an impact anymore. Oh, my God. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, you have 30 students. We have one teacher. And that woman changed my life. So I, she was my, she's my hero. Always will be. Oh, what a great story. Have, when was the last time you saw her? She actually surprised me at a book event uh, probably about two years ago. I mean, I see her on Facebook all the time now, but mm -hmm. I was at a book event and I, and I came to tell the story about her. <laughs> and someone said, guess who's here? And I looked up and there she was. And to be sitting behind the table and here comes your ninth grade English teacher. Um, there's no, I owe it forever. Oh, that's beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. I think that'll move right into my next question is, I know you're working hard to promote literacy in Florida. Tell me what you're doing. Yeah, so we are very actively involved with City or Miami. And if you don't know City or Miami, uh, you should. Because, it, you know, the, the idea came from uh, over 20 years ago is we always say, you know, where'd you spend your high school years? Where'd you spend your college years? Maybe where'd you spend your graduate school years? But the idea is where'd you spend your city year? And the idea comes is we take um, kids who are 17 to 24 years old and put them in the most at-risk schools in the country. So there's city year Washington, D.C., there's city year Los Angeles, there's city year New York, there's city year in every major city. Mm -hmm. And you go and you volunteer and you full-time mentors in these schools for the most at-risk kids. But my wife and I grew up here in Miami and we said, why is there no city or Miami? And so a decade ago, my wife, myself, and a woman named Wendy Spencer from the governor's office uh, decided to change that. And we helped bring city or down here. And every school, you know, we work with Superintendent Carvalho. Mm -hmm. um, and he says it's, you know, by far the best program we have. Uh, in our schools to help change these F schools into A schools. 
Um, when you come, there are kids in bright red city year jackets. I've they seen are, them. You've yeah. seen them, and mm-hmm. now you know them. You probably didn't know what their name was, but they're in these bright red jackets. They will high-five kids when they come to school. When you're not there, they will call you at home. And the kids who are in these schools, they get a phone call at home, and they're like, where are you today? And they're in shock because they're like, what do you mean? And they're like, where are you? And it's like, no one's ever cared that I didn't show up at school. And suddenly City Year cares, and suddenly City Year is there. And those mentors are there all day before anyone comes in. They're the last to leave at night. And they are mentoring those kids. And um, they teach literacy. They teach math. Um, and to me, that is just vital, vital work. That Because listen, if we all love to complain and bitch and moan and say Florida's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the only way that you can change that is with education. The only way you're going to get a better, you know, North Carolina realized decades ago, if we build good uh, schools and good colleges, we will have better workers, we will have a better workforce, we can hire better people, we'll have a better community. And that's where the triangle in North Carolina came from, the universities came from, and we need to do better here. We need to give that attention to literacy and that attention to education here if we want our community to be a little less crazy than we are right now. Because you know, no one beats Florida man. We know we are the best at that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So tell me what's next for you. So next is, and uh, we should talk about these kids' books. I mean, I started this kids' book series because uh, I wanted my kids to have better heroes to look up to. People know my thrillers like The Escape Artist or they know mm-hmm. the nonfiction adult books like we talked about The First Conspiracy. But I wanted my kids to have better heroes to look up to, that heroes of kindness and compassion, heroes of character instead of reality show stars or people who are yeah. famous for being famous. And I tried to give my daughter Amelia Earhart. I said, Amelia Earhart's amazing. I told my young daughter, you know, she was seven years old at the time. And I said, um, Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic Ocean. My daughter said, big deal, dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic. She wasn't impressed. But when I told her this true story, that when Amelia Earhart was just seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. She took a wooden crate, put roller skating wheels on the bottom. She shoved it to the roof of her tool shed, came flying down the side. <laughs> My daughter's like, tell me that story again. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the story. Yeah. And that's what our books are. It's called the I Am series, and I do it with an artist named Chris Eliopoulos. It's a cartoon uh, illustrated biography series. We've done I Am Amelia Earhart, I Am Abraham Lincoln, I Am Rosa Parks, I Am Albert Einstein, I Am Jackie Robinson for my son who loves sports. We did I Am Lucille Ball. Because I wanted I my daughter, my, I wanted my yeah. daughter to have a female entertainment hero. wasn't just famous mm-hmm. being thin and pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, that Lucy stands for that. It's great to be different. And we did. We our newest one is I am Walt Disney. I did for my youngest son, who's just super creative and loves mm-hmm. to draw. Mm-hmm. And we have adults buying these books, and we have kids buying these books. <laughs> we have baby books that you know people buy them for, and and kids who are seven and eight, and nine and ten years old, are they buy them for? But the I am series, you name the hero, we just uh, Walt Disney was uh, our nineteenth book that came out. So I am Walt Disney, and I am Marie Curie just came out. And, I, and that's what's next. We're going to be doing I Am Leonardo da Vinci comes out in Ooh, uh, April. I'll get that one. Yeah. And it's a really good one. Yeah. And um, and then we're doing another uh, adult conspiracy book. We're doing the Lincoln conspiracy about an actual secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln, but it's the plot that failed. This is the one you don't know about. It's a story that they tried to kill Abraham Lincoln years before the real plot oh, wow. that killed him. Yeah. And uh, and it's an amazing story. So the Lincoln conspiracy comes out in uh, in May. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you, Brad. Thank you for your time. Thank you. We've got a pause for the cause, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back with more weird stories after this short break. We continue our conversations with weird authors at the Miami Book Fair. 
Next is Bob Eckstein, an award-winning writer, New Yorker cartoonist, and author of the New York Times best-selling Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores. His new book is Everyone's a Critic, the ultimate cartoon book by the world's greatest cartoonists. Bob is also considered a snowman expert, a subject he researched for seven years for his book, The History of the Snowman. It turns out this jolly depiction of winter fun has a complicated history, some of it rooted in sex and violence. So I asked him, out of all of life's pondering questions, what made him choose the subject of the snowman? I was a writer and working for different magazines and newspapers in New York City, uh, like The Village Voice and Time Out New York and other places. And I was approached by publishers and agents if I wanted to do a book. And I've always loved Sherlock Holmes. I always loved mysteries. And um, my wife at the time encouraged me to pursue my obsession with snow. I knew I wanted to do a mystery, but I didn't want it to be negative. I didn't want to do a crime. So I was thinking to myself, like, what can I do? You know, uh, like, who told the first joke? Or who made the first sandwich? <laughs> I decided, all right, I'll follow this obsession with snow, like my wife suggested. On top of that, I went into a bookstore, like a huge Barnes & Nobles, and I just walked around wondering, what book would I want that I can't find? And then I looked at it from that point of view, and I saw that there was no real holiday books that were non-denominational. Now, I enjoy Christmas. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I'm Catholic. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up as an altar boy. and um, But at the same time, I realized everything was kind of Christmas, unless it's a cookbook. So I thought this would be a nice idea to have a, a holiday book for people that wasn't wrapped around Santa Claus or something. And on top of that, at the same time, Tim Burton came out with this movie, Batman. And that movie was a real big surprise. It kind of turned on its head this very campy image of Batman, the TV show. Up until then, we never imagined it to be a dark drama. Well, The Snowman, I tried to do the same thing. Take it a very everyday, taken-for-granted object, turn it on its head, and find out its history with sex and violence, which there are some. And the snowman making in the Middle Ages was some of the earliest forms of pornography and political commentary. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. There's these amazing events about the snowman, like um, the massacre of 1690, which is one of the, the, the bloodiest events in early American history. And then there's the miracle of 1511, which has never been shared before in print, uh, in English. It, these are some stories that I found um, over in Europe and in different languages, but I brought them here and pieced them together. Oh, that's um, that, that, you really dug deep in, in there for, with your research and everything. Yeah. So is that kind of how you get your inspiration? Like one thing can lead to another that can lead to another? Exactly. It's all like sort of an accident. I had another book called The Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores. And that book's been popular. Um, it's being um, produced into a TV show. It's in multiple languages. It was a New York Times bestseller. That was a total accident. It began with an article for The New Yorker about independent bookstores. And from there, I got interest from publishers. And I started spending time with independent bookstore owners. And after in investing the time with them, I became emotionally invested in them. 
Yeah. I started getting a real feel for the challenges for oh, independent yeah. bookstores. And I felt there was a story to be told there, and I was going to make it a way that was going to be digestible. So I used my artwork, and I used fun stories from different celebrities, and I gathered stories from people like um, Terry Gross and Paul McCartney and David Bowie and all these different people who had books change their lives. They were all great readers and great supporters of bookstores. And I folded them into the project. And the end result is like a love letter to bookstores. Yeah. When you went to college or you were sitting in your art class and you yeah. met your future wife and you were mortal enemies, you have to like tell me why you were mortal enemies. Well, no, it was just one of those things where we all in school have someone who's a nemesis, somebody who really <laughs> rubs us the wrong way. And our friends all knew that we did not get along at all. Um, it began with our work being compared to each other. In art school, the teachers would pit us against each other. Uh -huh. And at one point, she had actually stormed out of the classroom in tears, you know, cursing me. Uh, I'm just an innocent victim in this. <laughs> of course. But, but she really hated me. And, and in, all, in her defense, I was kind of creepy back in college, I think. <laughs> I, I really had a lot of growth there um, to go. So we didn't see each other. 12 years later, by total chance, we're sitting next to each other in a funeral. And the deceased parents, uh, a mutual friend of ours, approached us and asked us to be involved in a memorial art show for their daughter. And um, my, my, uh, my enemy and I uh, <laughs> decided that, uh, well, this might as well happen. And we decided to kind of um, elope to Iceland shortly after. And why Iceland? Well, I had that obsession with snow. Oh, right, and of course. And you couldn't get married any further north, I mean, <laughs> legally. You can't get married above the Arctic Circle, although we went above the Arctic Circle on our honeymoon. <laughs> but we did get married down in Iceland and sent postcards to our family and friends. When we didn't realize at the time that it would really piss off so many people. Uh, people <laughs> really were not pleased to learn that we actually got married. Um, especially people who I might have been dating at the time. Um, <laughs> okay. we, it was all kind of a surprise thing. But actually, I, I will say, we're getting along very well now. Oh, good. Yeah, our good. relationship has grown, and she's been a great inspiration to my work. She kind of totally believes in me. She pushes me, and none of this would be possible. I would not be speaking to you if it wasn't for her because she inspired me to just go a little further and just see what I have to offer, what mm -hmm. I could do. Does she critique your work? Like the, um... A little bit. I mean, mm -hmm. she's, she's, she's supportive. She's an artist herself, and she's more well-known than I am. Her work is in museums around the world. And so I try to be supportive of her, too. And, um, well, all I could say is I'm very lucky. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's good. It, when, when I read about that, it, it was a little reminiscent to me of, like, when Harry met Sally. Yeah. <laughs> I don't you know, know if you ever put those two together. Oh, no, it reminded me of the whole country. Yes. Yeah, people are always saying that you can't get along with people. I married my enemy. I mean, come on. Get with it. <laughs> you, can, right. you can work things out. There's a lesson here, people. I like to think so. <laughs> Tell me about the book you're, you know, that you're promoting here now. Okay, thanks. Well, the book that I'm doing now, again, is sort of a series of events that happened. After I did the bookstore book, they asked me, like, what's your next book? And, you know, we're interested in knowing what your, you know, next thing we could support. And I decided then that I was going to do a book that was a thank you to those bookstores that made me a, a Times bestseller. And 
the cartoon collection I made was about bookstores. It's cartoons by the world's greatest cartoonists, all about bookstores. And there was not really much money involved. It was a vanity project for them. Mm-hmm. And so we got together like people like Raj Chaz and Sam Gross and Bob Mankoff and people who are noted cartoonists. And the project came a very nice, very nice book. And then from that, because of the success of that, we decided to do a sequel. And we decided to do a theme that's like so very um, common right now, which is being a critic. <laughs> yeah, that's is, common. <laughs> yeah, the book is called Everyone's a Critic, and that's because everyone now really thinks they're a critic. I mean, never before did we all have power to put a thumbs up and thumbs down to everything from every place you eat to every book and movie and everything. It's pretty amazing. I know. Everybody's an armchair critic, right? I know. Tell me something weird in your life. The reason why I'm doing books now, so we'll go to that story, which is that I couldn't find a job anywhere else. Well, I'll just put it this way. I didn't finish high school. I I grew up in the South Bronx, and then I moved out to Long Island, and at some point they decided that school wasn't for me, um, but college was. I started sneaking in on classes. I realized that you can do that, that you could just sit in classes because they took attendance and they really didn't know who was not supposed to be there. So what was the art school that you snuck into? Pratt. Oh, okay. I was going to, and when I went to apply for Pratt, along with some other schools, I used as a letter of recommendation teachers I already had. And I said, I've been in your class already. <laughs> like a year, you've had me as a student. And now can you let me be there officially? When I graduated Pratt Institute, I then joined a faculty. I, I taught there for 12 years, and I taught at SVA. That's funny. He teaches at, at a university yet didn't finish high school. <laughs> yeah. And I teach now at NYU, writing and, and yes. drawing. Yes, So I keep myself off the streets and busy. <laughs> what a what a great way to write your own your own. See, you're writing your own story. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to go the mainstream and... And do what everybody else I, I does. I have to say, though, it wasn't premeditated. It, again, it was just by accident. Yeah. It just whatever came. Because that's why I see things. It's just like putting down railroad ties mm-hmm. right in front of me and not looking too far ahead because it could be overwhelming to understand yes. what you're going to be doing, what I should be doing. And this motto that I have that I wish I would keep to it more often, which is stay in your own lane. Don't judge. Don't be envious of other people doing better than you because you know the funny thing about this business as you go a little higher and you have some success you meet other people who you admire and people who you really are you know inspired by or whatever and they're always doing better than you you can never win that game you yeah. can never be as successful and instead you just have to be know that you're doing the best you can do and you just have to absorb that and say you know, that's my life. I, I'm just going to enjoy here and not go and, and judge. So I'd stay in my own lane. Oh, that's great advice. Oh, thanks. Great advice. Did I wish I would that? take it. Yeah, no, you have taken it. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is the story of a real place inspired by a fantasy, one we're all familiar with. It is described in the book Weird Florida, authored by the Mac Daddy of Weird Writers, Charlie Carlson. This is The Seven Dwarfs' House. Have you ever wondered where the real Seven Dwarfs' house is? The one in the story is pure imagination, and the one in the animated film was a drawing. So where's the real one? Believe it or not, it's sitting on Spruce Creek, just west of Port Orange, Florida. 
In 1898, James N. Gamble bought several acres here, including an orange grove, and built a small cottage and a citrus packing house. He called the place Eguinalti, which is supposedly a Native American word that means by the water. The property is on the upper reaches of Spruce Creek, which meanders its way east of Ponce de Leon Inlet. You'll recognize the family name. James Gamble was the son of the founder of the Procter & Gamble Company. James was a longtime winter resident and citrus grove owner in Volusia County, but it was his son-in-law, Alfred K. Nippert, who built the Dwarf's House. When Gamble died in 1932, his property was inherited by his two daughters, Olivia and Maud. Maud was Nippert's wife. Her death in 1937 left Albert looking for something to help him cope with her passing. He became enchanted by the Disney film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and began planning an exact replica of the dwarf's house. In 1938, he hired a carpenter to watch the movie ten times in order to learn every detail of the Black Forest-style cottage. When it was finished, Nippert's cottage had a fireplace, cypress door handles, stairs to the second level made of split logs, and headboards for the seven dwarfs' beds. Everything was there, except the dwarfs. Nippert then surrounded his cottage with a rock garden, a witch's hut, and the dwarfs' mine shaft. The property has always been private and was never open to the public. Walt Disney is supposed to have accepted an invitation in 1939 from Nippert to visit the Gamble home and see the dwarfs' house. In 1993, the Gamble property was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo, and I'd like to give a shout out to Jane Rose Cohen and Katerina Fonte for their production assistance. For the book fair, special thanks goes to publicist Lisa Pally. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.